we've been talking for a number of weeks now, trying to make us all aware of, of that there's a reality out there that affects our lives, our families, our nation, the world right now. That's a, that's a major controlling influence in what's going on in the world that exists in a realm that's outside of what our five senses can see. And so the, the title for this series, which you can see, I believe, up there, is Pulling Back the Curtain. What, what that represents is, and if you ever come to a play where there's obviously a curtain down and you get seated and the lights go down, and then at some point, so behind that curtain, there's a set. There's chairs and whatever it is, and you don't know what's behind that curtain until the curtain's pulled back or the curtain goes up, and now you get to see the play that's going to be acted out in front of you. Well, there's a play that's being acted out now. The play's being acted out in the world, in our nation, in our communities, in our families, in our own households, and even in our own personal lives. And that that play, that drama, is coming from and being influenced and in many ways controlled by what exists behind that curtain. And that curtain is the realm of the spirit. And the curtain itself represents the limitations of our five senses. Because your five senses and mine, we can't see behind the curtain unless God does something supernatural. But naturally, in normal course of events, we can't see what's going by. We can't hear. We can't taste, touch, or feel what's going on behind that curtain. So in the normal way of conducting our lives, we just kind of ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist, except maybe on Sunday morning when we sing a particular song that's a favorite of ours that kind of stirs us up inside. But that's not seeing behind the curtain. So we spent several weeks looking at some things behind the curtain. And we're not going to go back over those things. But then for the last several weeks, we've been talking about what it's like and how we can live behind the curtain. When we say, how can we live behind the curtain when we have physical bodies on this side? Because God has put in you what's behind that curtain. You are a spirit. You have a soul and they live in your body. Your body comes from the substance, the material, natural substance that's on this side of the curtain. God created Adam's body out of the dust of the earth. And when you're finished with your body, it will return to the dust of the earth until God raises it from the dead and gives you an immortal body. But that's not who you are. It's just your earth suit. It's what allows you to operate around in this realm. And I wish I had time to really break that down and show you. It's, it's through the scriptures how, pow- how true that is. I mean, demons, when, 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 well, I may probably do it anyway. When, when Jesus tasked the demons out of the, out of the, out of the man of Gadara, and the, the, the demons pleaded with him not to send them back into the abyss. That tells you how good, how, what hell's like. Even the demons are afraid to go back there. And they pleaded to go into the pigs instead of going back in. Why? Because they had to operate through a body in order to have some influence. But God needs a body in this earth in order to have an influence in this earth. And that's what you are. And that's what I am. And the body of Christ that we are part of. That's your body. But you're, you, who you really are is a spirit being. And that spirit being came from and exists really on the other side of that curtain. 
And then you have a soul, which is your mind, your will, and your emotions, your personality, and that bridges the two. When we get into renewing the mind, I'll break that down for you a little more. So that's what we're talking about. So if, if, the, if, the, if that spirit realm is in me, how do I live in this life behind that curtain while I'm still in a body here? Well, we began to look at this last week. We went to, to Galatians chapter 5, and we looked at the, if you put that up, we looked at the scripture that kind of describes, this is the biblical term for this. He says, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of your flesh. And we've learned before, when the Bible talks about walking something, it's talking about how you live your life, one moment at a time, one day at a time, which is like one step in front of the other. And so to walk in the Spirit, you will not, if you walk in the Spirit that's in you, you will not fulfill the lust of your flesh. And the more you learn to walk in the Spirit, the less, the, the less, uh, the lusts uh, of the flesh will have any appeal to you or any power over you. So the typical way that we as Christians try to overcome the lust of our flesh is by using our self-determination. I'll never do that again. And the moment you tell your flesh you're never going to do it again, it's going to do it again. But so God's way of doing it is to take the fuel away by having you so full of the Spirit that the things of your body and flesh just don't have that kind of appeal to you. There were things on television, not bad things, just that I used to enjoy, they just don't have any interest to me anymore. Because when you start tasting who's in you, when you start tasting the kingdom of God inside of you, nothing else satisfies you like that. And we're going to see that this morning if I ever get moving here a little bit. So we're talking about, so walk in the spirit. What, what does that mean? Does that mean I walk around like this all the time? No. What it means is to learn to live your life to the point that every moment you're more conscious of the spirit in you than you are the world around you. Now, when you leave here, don't close your eyes and try to do that when you get on the highway. But you can be sensitive in here, and I told you a story last week, out of my own life. So, what we began to learn, talk about the last several weeks is how to do that. And the, the key to it, the key thing that God's given us to do that is His Word. And we've talked about sowing that Word in your heart, keeping that Word in your heart, because God's Word in your heart will produce God's kingdom, cause God's kingdom to grow in your heart. But today we're going to look at another facet of this. We're going to look at how God has enabled you. God has given you a gift to enable you to do this. So He's not given us something to do, to walk in the Spirit, that only super spiritual, super saints, pastors, prophets, who can walk on water. No, it's for everybody. God's given you something already, that if you're in Christ, God's already given you something, someone to help you. And that's what we're going to look at today. So to do that, let's go back into the Old Testament. And we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 25. Ezekiel was a prophet. We talked, looked at him last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time in going back over who he was. But this is Ezekiel speaking to Israel, or Judah really, when they were in captivity, they had been taken by the Babylonians into captivity in Babylon, which is basically Iran and Iraq. They were taken there for a period of 70 years. 
because of their idolatry, because they refused to receive God's correction, they refused to do what he told them to do, and as, a, as an e- effort to save them, God had to remove them from where they were. But God's faithful because even when he removed them and sent them to exile, he sent prophets with them to encourage them and to strengthen them. And Ezekiel was one of these prophets. And in this section of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is prophesying to Israel their future, that where they are now is not going to be permanent, that God had a future and a hope for them. So we're going to read through these few verses and he's talking here specifically to them about the, what God is going to do to Israel. But we'll see as we get into it, he's, has a, there's often a second meaning when these prophets are prophesying that have to do with the Messiah, called Messianic prophets, prophecies. So well, as we go down through this, we will see this. Can you put up Ezekiel 36, please? Then I will sprinkle... Clean, I'm going to read down through it and go back and break it down. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So go back to verse 25. First thing he says is, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. So we're looking at this not so much for what God promised to do to Israel, but contained in these verses is God's promise to the church. Because if you are a Christian, you are of Israel. You are, you are, uh, you are, a, you are spiritually a Jew if you, are, if you are a Christian, I have time to go into all that and explain it to you. Just trust me, and I'll get a chance to explain it to you later on, some other time. But so this is speaking of the process of God, what God's taken you through, if you are born again. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. That speaks of the blood that's going to clean us. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. Okay, next verse, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Stop there a second. He's talking about a change that's going to take place in your heart, your spirit, your very nature. Before you came to Christ, I don't care how good you were, I don't care how honest you thought you were, I don't care, you could have been the best person that's ever lived, there was still sin in your heart, because there was pride, selfishness, and so what God knows he needs to do, is he needs to change our nature, not just clean us up, not just make us better people, because He's got to change our nature because Jesus taught over and over again that you will know the nature of a tree by the fruit it bears. Sinners sin because it's their nature. Ephesians 2, the first four verses said that we were by nature children of His wrath. So God says, I'm going to come in and change your nature. I'm going to take your old heart out and I'm going to give you a new heart. 
Jesus said it differently. John 3.16. He said, for you must be born again. Born speaks of such a fundamental change. It's as if that old person died and you're a new, new creature, a new being, a new entity that's never existed before. And the word again in Greek actually has two meanings. It means a second time, and it also means from above. So stay here. Yeah, that's good. So I will take out of, I'll give you a new spirit. I will take out your heart or spirit of, out of your, your of stone, out of your flesh. Now, a stone is something that's dead. It has no life. It just sits there like some of us do sometimes. It's hard. It's not sensitive to what's going on around. Sometimes when we're out traveling and somewhere where I see these huge rocks, I think that thing has been there for thousands of years and has never moved. (laughs) Like a lot of church people. It's hard. It's dead. It's inanimate. Things have gone on. Storms have come and go. Nations have come and gone. And it's still there. It's unmoved. It just sits there. It's insensitive. So God says, I've taken out of you that old heart that was insensitive. And a rock is cold. Cold, hard, and insensitive to what's going on around you. I've taken, because I can't change a rock. I've got to take a rock out and I've got to put something in that's different. And I will give you a heart of flesh. Flesh of, speaks of being something that's alive, that's tender and sensitive, that can feel, can express. Verse 30, 27. And I will put, don't go back to verse 26, excuse me, one more thing. He said, and I will give you, put a new spirit in you. So this is the new spirit God's put in you, a new heart. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. When we talked about this before, I told you that it, it speaks of being a, 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 a creature that never existed before. So when you were born again, God did a fundamental change in you. He took out your old heart, your old spirit, your old nature. And he put in you a brand new nature that was born out of him. That's why you're called his child. Because he's put his nature in you. And his nature is just like he is. Peter talks about having the divine nature. But what I wanted to get to is verse 27. Not only will I do that, but I'm going to take my spirit and I'm going to put my spirit within you. So God's saying, not only am I going to make a radical change in your nature, and your nature's going to be born out of me, but I'm not taking any chances. I'm going to take my, because the Holy Spirit is God's own spirit. I'm going to take my own spirit, and I'm going to put my spirit in you. Why? So He will help you to keep my statutes and my judgments. So that's why Paul says in Galatians, we just read it, if you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lusts of your flesh. And he goes on to say in the next verse, he said that therefore, if you're in the Spirit, there's no law against that. 
You don't need the law because God's put his desire in you and he's put his ability to carry that out in you. Say, I'm not there yet. No, but Philippians 2 says, for God is at work in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. How is God at work in you? Through the Spirit of His that He put in you. So we're going to begin today to talk about the Holy Spirit and His role in you. To enable you to walk in the Spirit, He is your helper. He is your helper. Matthew chapter 3. Now, we're talking here, we're going to be talking here for the next few verses about Jesus. And just a little background here, I know most of you have heard this before, but I'm going to help us focus in right now. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Lord Jesus. John 1.14 says, And the Word, the second person of the Godhead, became flesh and dwelt among us. God became a man. It's called the Incarnation. When He did this, Philippians tells us that He laid aside, He laid aside His divine attributes. He was still God, but He laid aside His power. He laid aside His glory. He laid aside all the, all the, 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 the power and glory that He had as the second person of the Godhead and was born as a man. He was still God, but He laid those things aside. And so for 30 years, He grew up and He walked among us as, as God in the flesh, but He did no miracles. And then, at the appointed time, He comes, and this is John the Baptist speaking. And this is right before Jesus comes to him. He said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. John the Baptist was called the Baptist because he baptized people. And in the old covenant, there was a rite of baptism. But the significance of the baptism in the Old Testament is different than it is in the New Testament. It represented that washing of water, that cleansing of the water, that you were sorry and repenting of your sins, and so you would go be baptized, and it represented a cleansing from your sins, but it couldn't change your nature. So you'd go back out and sin again and have to get washed all over again. He says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now let's go down to verse 13. So Jesus came up from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized. Verse 12. John tries to stop him. Why? He knows who this is. Look what he says to him. We just read, he said, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And now Jesus comes to him, probably in a line of people, in a crowd, and he's the next in line to be baptized for repentance. And this is God in the flesh. What's he got to repent of? That's what John's reaction is. John says, try to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me? Look what Jesus says. Next verse. But Jesus answered him, 
permit it to be so now, which means there will be a time when I baptize you. Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus was coming to fulfill the requirement of the Old Testament to be baptized for repentance, even though he was purely righteous and had never sinned because he was fulfilling what the law required. Jesus perfectly kept the law. He humbled himself. This is what Philippians 2 talks about. He humbled himself. You'll know, I'll never grasp with the extent of this humility until we get in heaven and we see him in his glory and see what he put aside to come down here and become one of us. But because he humbled himself, when you humble yourself, you open the door for God to come in and bring himself. Look, at the, look what happens. Verse 16. And when he had been baptized, so Jesus was obedient to do what the law required and humbled himself. He would have been entitled to say, wait a minute, I don't need to be baptized for repentance. I've never sinned. But he submitted to what the law required. And by humbling himself, he says, when he'd been baptized, Jesus came up and immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Up until this point, Jesus has performed no miracles. We know that for several reasons. Because in the book of John, it says in chapter 2, when he turned the water into wine, this was the very first miracle that he did. The second reason we know that is because when he goes back to Jerusalem after he's been anointed with the Holy Spirit, and, 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 and they're all upset because they keep saying, this is, we know you. You're Joseph's son. You're Mary's son. And because of that, they, he was not able to do the miracles in his hometown that he could do everywhere else. Because the problem they had was getting over the image of this boy, a good boy. Oh, best we've ever seen. But it's not God. He's just Jesus. Because they couldn't change their image of him, he couldn't do for them what he did for others. And but from this point on, everything Jesus does, he does by the power of the Holy Spirit in him. Now why would God do that? Why couldn't he just come here and as the second person of the Godhead exercise his authority, display his power and authority, and God just show off, look, what can I can do? You guys are, you, 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 you know, you think you're hot stuff, look what I can do. First of all, that's not God's heart. God's not trying to impress anybody. He doesn't need to. He's trying to save us. But the other reason Jesus didn't, he did, didn't do it that way is he's a prototype. You know what a prototype is? When they're designing a new car or something, they'll come up with a model that they, so you can see what it's like and you can see what it can do. So Jesus was a, a man born of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. And in that capacity, He did all the things that He did. Well, who are you? You're a man or a woman born of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. If you're not, we'll take care of that. So God has sent Jesus as a prototype to show us 
what his body in the earth can and should be doing. And it's by the power, the anointing, and the direction of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus begins, and the very first thing, chapter 4, verse 1 says, and the Spirit, I think you can put it up there, and the, and the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus now is submitted to the Spirit to lead him wherever he goes. Okay. I knew that would excite you. John chapter 4. This will. And we have to kind of just touch on this. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible. John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7. Jesus is on his way from Judea to, to, to Galilee, and he has to pass through uh, Samaria. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, nor, do, nor could they with women. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, keep in mind, the scene is, this is the middle of the day. All the ladies of the, of, the, of the city would come out early in the morning before it was hot. I mean, it was hot anyway, before the, the, the hottest part of the day. And they would fill their water pitchers up at this well and then take them back for the water that they needed for this day. This woman, we're not going to go this far, this woman had a reputation in the town, undoubtedly, because she's had five husbands and she's living with somebody that's not her husband. Because of that, she can't come up with the rest of the ladies. So she has to come up in the middle of the day, at the hottest part of the day, to fill her pot with water. But isn't it interesting? The woman that's outcast, the woman that the other ladies of the village or town won't have anything to do with because she's, she's stained. At the worst part of the day, who comes to meet her but God? to meet her in her weakness and enters into this conversation with her. So I'm mentioning that because this is the hottest part of the day, the time when you're the most thirsty. And she's probably been waiting to come up there until the other people have left to fill her water pot. And Jesus engages her in this conversation. He says, you know, you've come for water, but, but if you know who I was, I have, a, I have a water for you that if you drink of it, it will, you will never thirst again. Now, water thirst in the Bible represents a need that you have, a physical need that causes you to yearn for something to meet that need. And so the water he's talking about here, she's talking about the physical wet water. He's talking about the inner need of her soul, the need to be loved, the need to be accepted, the need to have significance, the need to have a purpose, None of these can come from this life. They have to come from the only one that can give it to us, the source of our life. And so Jesus said, if you knew who I was, you would ask of me, because I have living water. 
that you would never thirst again. And look what he goes on to say about it. This is what I wanted, I wanted to see. Because she said, Lord, you don't, oh, excuse me, sir, you have nothing with which to draw the water. Verse 11, and the well is deep. How are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from himself, as well as his sons and livestock? And Jesus answered, verse 13, and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. For the water that I shall give him, let's look at this, will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. A fountain is a source. So what Jesus is saying is, if you drink of this water, you'll thirst again. But I will give you a gift that in you will become the source of that water so that that water is always in you available to draw and flow up and drink as you are thirsty. So whatever you are in your life, whatever you're going through, whatever you're struggling with, just as she was struggling with issues in her life, whatever you're going through, whatever you're struggling with, when you get up in the morning during the day, God has put in you, by His Spirit, a source of living water to satisfy your deepest need. And all day long, our minds and our senses are bombarded with false alternatives to give us that. I find myself sometimes sitting on my back, our back deck, you know, either with my iPad and I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, my mind's, I want to look for something to entertain my mind. So I'll look at the news, which isn't always the smartest thing to do. Look at the weather for tomorrow, which may not be smart either. You know, you want to look for something to occupy your mind. And when I'm doing that, there's nothing satisfying in that. Oh, it may, sat- it may, it may intrigue my mind for a little bit. I've got an app that does, I like crossword puzzles because it just it makes me think but it doesn't satisfy anything. And I come away from that no, no more satisfied. But if I'll pick up the Word, if I'll just spend a few moments just praying, talking to God, or, or worshiping, or, or praying in the Spirit, there's life begins to, to well up inside of me that satisfies and brings me peace. And Lord has been teaching me lately. Because if I have a, a time during the day, or even a day, and it's like I'm feeling... Oh, I feel stale or, or just dull or, or, or I hear people saying I'm just going around in a fog the fog is on this side of the curtain the fog is because I've been spending too much time in my senses and in my mind and not tapping in to the well the fountain of living water that God put in you when he put his spirit in you that's why we started God said I will put my spirit in you so many Christians are bored. When you get caught off and dra- dragged off, de- deceived off, led off by all these crazy things that are out there about the earth is flat and this and that and all this. Blah, 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 blah. Pastor Sam had this great, our founding pastor, this greatest expression. Have you become so bored with Jesus that your mind has to chase after those things? Jesus, the Holy Spirit in you, is the most satisfying must fill you with living water, life, eternal life. God lives in you by the Holy Spirit. 
How can we ever be bored? How can we ever be, how can we ever be loose? How, but because we don't know how to tap into Him. Because we, let, we, get, we get anesthetized, which is exactly Satan's scheme. Anesthetized with all the stuff of this world that comes at us, and they're legitimate things we have to pay attention to. But even when you're doing your job, you can still be tuned into the Spirit. In fact, He'll help you do your job better. I'm just trying to make you aware of who is in you and how to get in touch with Him. In you. If you're a Christian right now, God's put His Spirit in you. We read that. His Spirit. His wisdom. His strength. His courage, His everything is in you right now by His Spirit. And the very first thing He wants to be is refreshing water to you to satisfy the deep needs of your soul so you don't have to chase after the lusts of your flesh. I was talking to my wife yesterday about a situation that we're praying over and I said what we need to do is not think so much about the situation, but think so much about what God's able to do. What can God do here? What's He, what's he ever done? What's He done for us? What's he done, what's he done for His people? What's God able to do? And when I begin to do that, I'm beginning to peek behind the curtain again. But the curtain's not up there, it's here. It's in me. And it's your flesh. It's our flesh. We're going to have to stop here. I don't, didn't even get halfway done with today. I, I know I've said to you, and I will, that we're going to begin to teach the renewing of the mind. But I really feel the Lord impressing me to go in this direction right now to teach about the Holy Spirit. Because I believe that there are things that God wants to do for us to manifest Himself here that can only come as we become more aware of more, more, more focused on and more open to the Holy Spirit. In several weeks, I know we've got a guest next week and then there's some other things coming up. But what I'm working towards is a time where if you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit, because I'll explain to you what that is, you're going to have an opportunity to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because next time, we're going to talk about, we've got Rust Half next week, but the next time, we're going to show you that this is just the beginning Jesus said, there'll be, a, there'll be a fountain in you. But in chapter 7, he says, there'll also be rivers of living water flowing out of you. And that speaks of the Holy Spirit ministering out of you to others. And that's what we'll get to next time. So let's pray. Father, we come to you trusting you to guide us and to direct us. And I'm not going to force something. I want to be as sensitive to you as I can be to allow you to lead us and to guide us. Because I sense strongly within me that you, you're, yeah, there's a, there's a change coming. I sense there's a change coming. Good change. A freedom. That there's a freedom of your spirit to say and do what he wants to do. We thank you for all that you've done. 
We thank you for all that you've been able to say, but we want, we want to be open and free to allow Him to do what He wants to do as He wants to do it. And so, Father, help us to be patient, to learn, to allow you to develop what you want to develop. And we trust as we follow you that you're faithful, we know that, that you will get us to where you have us to go at the right time. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Before